If you would like more information about Jubilee Church, please visit our website at jubileestl.org. And as Jesus reclined at a table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This is the word of the Lord. Before we get started, just a couple housekeeping things. Uh, uh, Cody and Emily, great, great uh, little plug there for the youth, but I just have to correct something. Um, As a parent of middle school uh, kids, uh, parents don't have to earn brownie points with their kids. Um, Kids have to earn brownie points with their parents. So I will sign them up, but I just want to say that. Um, just in case you're listening, kids. Um, secondly, it's summertime, and on summer, uh, we take trips, take long trips on vacation. And if you do have kids, what is it that kids say to their parents over and over again when they're on a long trip? Are they there yet? Second question, very similar. What do people in a church say when they're going through a building project? Are we there yet? And uh, we're not there yet, and how much does it cost? I'm going to do both those things. Um, uh, we start, for those who don't know, that we are uh, looking to buy a, a facility uh, for the Kirkwood location. They've been renting for a, a middle school for the past uh, few years. This is a rendering of what we hope the outside would look at, uh, would look like, excuse me. And um, at, back in November, we put a contract on a piece of land at Watson and Limburg. And we're getting very, we're getting nearer to the end in terms of when that, uh, th- this piece of land would close. In fact, there's just one little detail um, left to go. Uh, the city of Sunset Hills has to approve this, and they've, we've gone through several points of approval. The final meeting is on June the 12th. It's this, what's called the second reading of a, the Board of Aldermen, which basically just means anyone you know, speak now or forever hold your peace, like anyone who's not happy with this project uh, can go and speak up. So if you don't like Jubilee, you can go to that meeting and just say, you know, we, we want to stop this. But if you, if you do like Jubilee Church, perhaps you could pray uh, for that meeting. That'll be the final legal thing. And then it's really in, the ball is in our court, whether or not we want to close on the building or close on the piece of land uh, to buy this building. And then after that, what we'll do is MSD has to come out and give us their opinion of what we have to do sewer-wise, which will involve everywhere from us spending $0 to spending maybe $100,000 to do stuff with, with the sewer, which you know, we're hoping for the, the $0 uh, dollar version. Uh, and then after that is just really getting, you know, hiring someone to do a, a detailed cost analysis of how much we think uh, what it'll cost. But we've done some preliminary things. And if, if our preliminary projections are right, we, we, we hope to uh, move forward on that, assuming a, a bank will loan us some money. Um, so if you know any, want, any lenders, uh, you please let me know, especially the kind of lenders that don't require you to pay them back. We would really want those. <laughs> but here is, um, it, it'll be tax deductible. I mean, you can tell them that. Um, so here's kind of the general budget for the building. Which I know this sounds a lot. I'm like, it's hard for me even to say these numbers. I get choked up. Is um, the land, uh, we, we're under contract for 950000 which is actually a really great deal. Um, the 
unless you're the seller in this room, it's a terrible deal and you, we should go lower. The, uh, the hard cost is kind of like to build the actual building, the parking lot and those kinds of things, a, a little over $2 million. The soft cost, which would uh, just kind of, you know, the furniture and the light, you would be shocked at how much lights cost. They're very, very expensive. And all the sound and audio equipment, all that kind of stuff. Uh, total cost in the project nearing $3.5 million, which is, is a, lot, a lot of money. And, uh, but we do believe that it will stretch us as a church, but we believe it's within our uh, ability to do so. And we believe God's leading us direction. It's not finished yet, and there's still a lot of due diligence that we have to do, but we won't let you know it's progressing. And uh, in, in, I mean, this is really, a, a, the hand of God is, is, is leading us and moving us and has been, been blessing us, and it's been cool so far. So I just encourage you to keep praying for them. I remember when we bought this building, we were like a quarter of the size with like a fifth of the budget. And we bought this building 11 years ago that we're in right now for like $1.7, $1.8 million after the renovations. And so I, this, is, this should be a, a, an easier task than that, but it's still an expensive thing to do and difficult. So please be praying for, for us, for Kirkwood, and the meetings that come up. So there's a little update on the building. I know some of you um, were curious, and some of you are like, who cares? Uh, I don't care about buildings. I don't care about youth. I don't. I'm just kidding. Sorry. Um, well, we're going to continue our series called Bless, and this is the fourth week. And this is really an important series because it, it, it really is, it, is it, it boils down really what is the key evangelistic strategy of the church. Like, how do we operate as missionaries? Because that's the big idea. If you are a follower of Jesus, uh, your identity is a witness. Your identity is one who's meant to represent Christ. That's what Christian means, to be Christ-like. And so how do we represent Christ here on earth? And we talked about in week one is that Genesis 12, uh, God uh, tells Abraham through Moses to us that you are, a, I want to bless you. I'm going to bless you as my people. And I don't want just that blessing to terminate on you, but it, I want you to be conduits for which my blessing goes. And so we learn from Ephesians that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing, that one of the things that we need to do as Christians is we need to come to understand who we are in Christ and what Christ has done for us because he's blessed us so much. I mean, that's why we're in worship services. We, we raise our hands and we want to give shouts and oh, we want to sing because God has done an amazing amazing work in our life, but he hasn't just done an amazing work in our life for us to hold on to it so that we would be reservoirs of his blessing, but that we'd be conduits and we'd be, seek to bless other people. And uh, a guy in our church in this location, actually, city location, James Deering, he showed me uh, his bulletin board. He wrote this and put it on his bulletin board board, and I loved it, and I wanted to share it with you. And it says, he says, I have been blessed so that I can be a blessing to others. And when people ask why to glorify God, and that's what we want to be. We want to be a movement of people who, who understands that we have been blessed by God with every spiritual blessing, and that we are seeking every day to be a blessing to others. And so some of it, you may be asking the question, does this really work? I mean, this is great, but is this actually going to make a difference? Are people going to come to know Jesus? And, you know, I'm kind of a pragmatic guy as well. You know, like, give me, you know, show me, <laughs> give me the bottom line. What, what's going on here? Uh, does this really work? And where, where we were inspired by this idea was actually there was a, 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 re, a doctrinal research paper written some years back, 
And they, they had a theory about blessing. And so they sent two short-term missionary trips uh, to Thailand. And one group went with just the intent to bless. We just want to be a blessing. And so we'll call that group the blessers. The other group went with the specific intent to convert, that we want to evangelize and change people's mind about the God of the Bible. So we'll call them the converters. And so they went out and and did their deal. And on their return, a research team went out to go, hey, we're going to go find out what happened. We want to, this is a research paper. We want to find what was uh, the results. And as you might imagine, the community liked the blessers more. Like they did more social good. They, they invested more in the community. Uh, the, the social impact was much better done by the blessers. But what may surprise you is that the blessers did a better job actually at seeing people converted than the converters, which not by just a few, but by a large amount, by 50 times. Let me show you this. The blessers saw 100 conversions and all they did was seek to bless people. And the converters, those trying to convert people, only saw two. The sole intent of the people who were trying to only saw, and thank God for those two, by the way. I mean, heaven throws a party when there's just one. So two's amazing. Two's twice the fun. But 100 people, they were more fruitful, more effective by blessing. Why was that? Well, because they had developed this intentional way of living living Holy Spirit-soaked lives, seeking to do good to everyone, seeking to bless them. And the community took note, and, the, and individual people took note. And when they asked, what motivates you to live this way? And that is, they said, well, Jesus motivates us to live this way. And our little secret is that even though we do this without anything in return, we actually get a lot in return. I mean, first of all, God's already pre-blessed us pre-rewarded us with every blessing under heaven. But he even tells us that when we get to heaven, somehow like he's going to, anything that we gave up in this life, he's going to return to us a hundredfold. So even though we do this with no strings attached, we actually still get something in return. So it's kind of a win, 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 like keep winning. Just, we just win when we do this, that people win and we win and heaven wins. So as your pastor, I, I wanted to, I, I, my desire is that we would be this kind of people, that we'd be, we would be a blessing people, and that we would seek to be a blessing, number one, for our own maturity and discipleship, that we want to be like Jesus. And so in seeking to be like Jesus, we would seek to bless. That's what Jesus did. In Acts 10, a summary of his life, Luke says that Jesus went about doing good wherever he went. That was like the banner of his life. We want to be people who do good wherever we go. But also for the good and the ultimate salvation for as many people as God would give us the grace to lead people back to God. We want to do that as well. So we want to be a movement of people in St. Louis, in Kirkwood, in Washington, at the lake, and wherever we go, that we would be, we would take the blessing of God that God has blessed us with, and we'd be those who would give it to other people. Well, how did that practically happen? Well, uh, blessing is a posture we take but it's also an acronym, an acronym. And, I, and if you think they're corny, so do I. I think acronyms are corny. And I, so this took a lot of like, inner fortitude to like, give you this, all right? So this is a demonstration of how much I love you. Um, so bless. So the first one is begin with prayer. Like, prayer is a great place to start. Uh, you know, before we talk to somebody about God, we want to talk to God about somebody. And we want to, we want to pray as, we, as God tweaks our heart for people that we want to bless. We want to pray as we learned the first week that God would open a door. That's what Paul prayed in Colossians. God would open a door for us. Because if he doesn't come and build that, we're just doing this in vain anyway. 
So we want to pray that God opens a door and that he seasons our speech. Secondly, we want to listen. Christians have a deep-seated reputation of being people who, are, who, who do well at communicating their thoughts and beliefs, but don't do a very good job at listening to other people's thoughts and beliefs. And because of that, Christians have built barriers and walls between other cultures and other people and other who people have different thoughts. We've not built bridges uh, the way that we see Jesus doing and the way that we see the New Testament church doing so we want to be good listeners. Now, to be fair, it's you know not listening well is not just that's not a Christian thing. That's a human thing. I mean, our our society. I mean, I, I don't know. It's just it's more divided than ever. Um, and you know, social media isn't helping. You know, everybody has a megaphone to the world to communicate their beliefs, and they don't have to listen to anybody. They don't want to. They could just communicate their beliefs and just hear back from everyone who believes like them and thinks like them and acts like them. But as Jesus followers, we have the opportunity to not be led by our flesh, like what we want to do, but be led by the spirit and, and to engage people who think differently than us, that look differently than us. They're different ages, different socioeconomic background, who have different theological beliefs. We can engage them by, by not by talking, but by, but by listening. It's a way we can bless people. And then we're going to get into eat today. That'll be fun. Next week, we want to talk about serve, that you know, Jesus came uh, not to be served, but to serve others. And we want to be the hands and feet of Jesus practically in our community. So we want to serve. And then we want a story that is that at the, at the right time, at the appropriate time, we want to humbly yet boldly tell people what God has done in our life and how that intersects with what Jesus did on the cross, the gospel. So we're going to learn about how to share our story. So there you have it. Bless. Isn't that neat? Isn't that fun? And the first week we handed out you know, bookmarks. I hope you still have that. If not, there should be some on the info table for you to remind you. Now, our subject today is eat. And this one might be the most important message. Not, not just for obvious reasons that it's about eating, but because this one has the opportunity. I mean, I could probably say all five of them are the most important. But I say this one because I think this one ha- might have the potential to change your life the most, your day-to-day life the most. This one here, if you, if you, if you grab a hold of this, if you haven't grabbed a hold of this rhythm yet, this one has the potential to change your life. Because when you think about how Jesus chose to interact with people who were not yet in, how he chose to engage culture, it's summed up in Matthew 11, and it may not be what you think. Let me show you this. It says, the son of man has come to blank and blank. And, you know, some people, you know, to, you know, it wasn't to hand out tracts. It wasn't to offer you know, airtight uh, arguments for why Christianity is true. But it simply says the Son of Man came eating and drinking. When they, a summary verse of how he came and approached culture, he came eating and drinking. That's very fascinating to me. In fact, one commentator on the book of Luke noted Jesus' Jesus's activity all through the book of Luke. And what he pointed out is that that in every instance, Jesus was either going to a meal, he was at a meal, or he was leaving a meal. Like, that's what he did for three. He's just, he had meals. Like, his, his, this wasn't just some kind of side thing that he did, but it was central in how he engaged other people. So this is amazing news for those of us who feel like we have to have all the answers that the key evangelistic strategy of Jesus was eat. So all you have to do is, number one, you have to like to eat. And you have to like, well, you don't just have to like, you have to love people. 
So you have to eat, check. But the second one, the second one is you have to love people. You don't have to win an argument. In fact, I find that that's actually counterproductive. To try to win an argument is counterproductive. But eating meals. So the E in bless is to eat. And so we want to build into the rhythm of how we live as a church and as individuals, as Christ followers. We want to build in rhythms of hospitality. We want to build in rhythms of hospitality. That's one of the reasons why we aspire to keep the church calendar very simple. I mean, it's very, very strict. I mean, for a church our size, we should have way more programs than we have. We do Sunday mornings. We do uh, small groups. And we have prayer meetings. And every once in a while, we do special events. We don't have a meeting for this and, a, and a, you know, this committee and that committee and this class and that class and Sunday school and you know, intramural sports. And just, you know, we, don't, we don't do all that kind of stuff. And the reason, it's very intentional. This is why it's intentional. Because we want hospitality to be a major part of our lives. Because it was a major part of the life of Jesus that woven into his life was hospitality, this, this, this constant thing of, of, of meeting strangers and making them friends and turning them into to family. And so we want to build. And so I want to give us just three reasons why this was uh, Jesus. This is why I think Jesus' evangelism strategy was eating meals with people, extending this kind of hospitality. So if you're a note taker, this is your cue. Number one, conversion primarily happens through relationship. Conversion primary happens through relationship. And this is because everyone, page one of our Bible says this, everybody is made in the image of God. Short, tall, uh, regardless of race, regardless of color, regardless of background, regardless of any, everybody is made in the image of God. Everybody's made in the image of God. Everybody is hardwired to, is created to somehow reflect who God is. And one of the things that we know about God is that he is Trinity, he is, he is three but one. He's one God reflected in three persons. And these three persons, mysteriously, they're, they're constantly loving and preferring and respecting, respecting and honoring one another. And it's out of this overflow of love that we were created. We, you know, uh, we weren't created by an act of power. We were created by an act of love. And it was the overflow of who God is. God himself is relationship. We are not fundamentally rational beings. We are fundamentally relational beings, right? You know, you just got to look around and and know that we are not rational. We are primarily relational beings. That's why uh, arguments and apologetics, why they do have their place, and I thank God for them, and we need them, they are overblown in their importance. But hospitality is, 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 is... belittled by it. It needs to be lifted up. And this is because we're relational beings. We trust the people who know, who know the most about us, not people who know the most stuff. You're going to trust people you know, not people who know the most stuff. People primarily get loved in belief, loved into belief, not argued in belief. And this, this is true in Matthew 9. I mean, Matthew 9, verse 9, we didn't read this, but this is the Matthew comes into relationship with Jesus. He gets converted. And the first thing he does, he invites all of his friends. Jesus probably told him, hey, why don't you invite all your friends? Oh, you mean these other tax collectors that, that religious people don't? Yeah, yeah, invite them. And they come into their household. And I'm sure many of them became um, Christians. Jesus's primary uh, hub of ministry wasn't some street corner or it wasn't some pulpit even. 
it was his, a home. It was a home. He did, that was his hub of ministry was a home. And that is meant to be our hub of ministry, is our homes or our apartments or wherever we um, spend time. It, it's not related to your home, but it's, it's, it's this posture of, of bringing people in. Conversion doesn't happen primarily by changing people's minds with arguments, by changing people's hearts with relationships. And that's what we've seen here mostly with Jubilee Church. I mean, very few stories do people come in, you know what, you know, some guy like argued with me and like convinced me and like, and then I became a Christian and, you know, we baptized him. That's not how those stories work. Stories work, somebody befriended me and over time, you know, I realized that my preconceived notions about Christianity were wrong and that, that it was, wasn't about rules, it was about this relationship. I was invited into a relationship with them and then I learned about God and then the light bulbs came on and now I'm, now I'm being baptized. And, that, and that's probably your story as well. And that, I'm glad that this is mostly true about Jubilee Church, but unfortunately in the broader church scene, this has not been true for the past 20, 30 years. When people come into a church, they get a different picture than what we see in the New Testament. It can be summed up this way, that most churches, whether they do this intentionally or not, it's like, you've got to believe what we believe. And if you believe what we believe and you behave like we want, like we behave, so you don't do anything that makes us feel uncomfortable. You don't do anything around our kids that cause us to have to parent harder. You know, you just kind of make it, if you believe what we believe and you behave the way we behave, then you can belong with us. Now, they, this happens more than we care to admit admit either consciously or unconsciously. But Jesus in Matthew 9 totally turns that on his head. He says, you belong. In fact, the Pharisees said to the disciples, why does your teacher have a meal with sinners? Why does he, why does he make a place of belonging for people who don't believe and certainly don't behave the way we think they should believe and behave? Jesus says, look, when it comes to how you're going to see people come into my family is that you want to, when you want to create an atmosphere of belonging, you want to create an atmosphere of acceptance. That yes, we believe certain things. And yes, by the power of the Holy Spirit, once we believe those things, it totally changes how we act and think and all the other and behave. But it comes in this atmosphere of belonging. So that's what we want to do. We want to create an atmosphere of belonging, an atmosphere of an acceptance, an atmosphere of like, yeah, you may think differently, believe differently, but you belong. And we want to, you can come and you can be amongst us. You can come and have a meal at my table. And over time, they may believe, they may not. But then the, the hope is that they would believe because we want them to experience the life of God. And But they're only going to behave, friends, <laughs> they're only going to behave once the Spirit of God comes into their life. You aren't the way you are because of your effort. It's because of what God has done inside of you. And so to make them, to make them behave before they're ever going to belong is actually kind of a cruel trick. And it's not how you were treated. You were accepted before you believed and behaved. So here's, here's, a, here's a practical application. Put margin in your schedule and in your budget for hospitality. Hospitality will cost you time and it will cost you money. That's why Peter says to the early church, do hospitality without grumbling or complaining. Why might you grumble or complain? Because it will cost you time and it will cost you money. And when, you, when the rubber hits the road, you have to put margin in your life for this to happen. So that's one part. The second reason why I think Jesus did this is because what, who we eat with is a powerful communicator of how we really believe and think. This has been true of all cultures. 
But who we eat with is a powerful communicator of how we really believe and think. If you go home today, tonight, and you read, just go read the book of Galatians. The book of Galatians is a full frontal assault on heresy. And the heresy Paul's trying to address with the Galatians is legalism. What was the context for which he addressed this legalism or how this legalism is happening? It was happening over the lunch table. So he says to Peter, like, you say you believe this thing, but you're acting contrary to the gospel. You're only, ha- you're only eating meals. You're only, you're at lunchtime, you're only with the, the Jewish people, the people like you. You're, you're not sharing a meal with the How come you don't eat a meal with the Gentiles? Think about it. In junior high and high school, how did you know who was cool and wasn't cool? In 11th grade... I was, um, I transferred to a new high school and for the first two weeks, there was the cool table, right? There was the not cool table and then there was the Brian Mowry table. Like the, for the first two weeks of 11th grade, I, exactly, exactly. For the first two weeks of, of 11th grade, I sat by myself. Somewhere in the middle of that, a teacher did come and sit by me, which would, did not help. I mean, I was like, I, I appreciate the thought, but the thought actually doesn't count. And so I need you to leave. Um, now, on a more serious note, on a much more serious note, in the 1950s and 1960s, especially in the South, where was racism most prevalent? Whites-only restaurants. Whites-only drinking fountain. Who we share a meal with is a powerful communicator of what we believe and how we think. Now, this is true in our culture, but let me tell you something. It was way more true in this New Testament culture. Number one, this is the context of the New Testament is the Roman Empire. And in the Roman Empire, meals were incredibly stratified. And what I mean by that is the person who sat next to you was the most important person to you, and then the second most, and then the third most, and the fourth most, and so on and so on. And if you weren't invited, it meant that you didn't matter. I mean, it is high school on steroids. That who came to, this is why Jesus tells a parable. Like when you, when you invite someone over to dinner, you know, don't sit at the top, sit at the bottom. I mean, just don't assume that you have, you're the most important person to that whoever the host is. Like it, it's, it's a whole parable on how to, you know, dinner etiquette. Because this, is the, this was the Roman Empire. Now, now, the time of Jesus, he didn't just live in the Roman Empire. He was also Jewish. Now, in the Jewish law, there were over 600 Jewish laws. Guess what one third of those laws were about? Dietary restrictions. People who don't eat these things are in with God. People who do eat these things are not with God. So here you have a context where meal, where the invitations were incredibly stratified. And there's, there's this thing among the Jewish community that if you eat these things, you're not in. And if you do eat these, so this was a big, big deal. So when Jesus is having a meal with someone, he is doing serious theology. And he's saying, you matter to me and you can be in with God. This was a powerful thing that he did. In fact, verse 10, it says, as Jesus reclined at the table, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with him. Somehow this was Jesus' reputation. 
that he, that people who weren't like Jesus, liked Jesus, that he put off this vibe that you are, I, I want to be with you, that you are, that you are in with me and you can be in with God. This was something powerful Jesus would do. And every time that we sit down with a meal with someone, we are communicating the same thing. We, are, we have this opportunity to communicate to people that you are important to me and you can be in with God. This is very bad. So here's a few really like low bar things that you can do. Number one, at every service, I don't know if you know this, at every service, we have guests to this service. At, at, in this, right now, there's people here. I won't point you out. Don't worry about it. But when you leave here, this is going to happen. Out there in the lobby is going to be high school. Out there in the lobby, I'm gonna, I'm, you're gonna, I'm gonna, I can go out there in the lobby and I can tell who your friends are and I can tell who the new people are because the new people might be sitting around. Actually, they're not going to be standing long because like two seconds standing by yourself is like 10 years. It's forever. And they're going to be beelining it for the door. But you have an opportunity to express hospitality by going to new people and not just saying hello, but my, inviting them to a meal. Now, they may look at you and think like you're psycho and who does this, but that's fine. I'd rather people think that than think that we don't care. But you have an opportunity, you have an opportunity to express the love of Jesus by just simply just being hospitable here. Like you don't even have to do it at your home, but you need to do that at your home. Here's another one. At celebration here in a few weeks, there's going to be a bunch of first timers at celebration. And there's going to be all these people from all these other churches. So the way it feels in the lobby is going to feel maybe even more like that there. And there's going to be a lot of people. There's going to be literal lunch tables. We're going to have lunch together at celebration. And there are going to be people who are going to be looking around like, who am I going to sit by? Let's, let's not repeat high school. Let's not repeat junior high. Like, let's be, let's, let's, let's mix it up and let's show hospitality. Here's, an, here's a third one. 80% of the U.S. workforce eat lunch alone. You could, this week, you don't even have to invite anyone to your home yet. So if you're one of the, like, you, you, can, you can, this week, go find someone at their desk. Four out of five will be sitting at their desk by themselves eating their lunch. You can go to them and say, will you have lunch with me? You can show hospitality at work. Okay, the third one, the third and final reason why I think Jesus did this that's not our final reason, but I think it's, it's Jesus' reason, is to get past people's negative assumptions about religious people. I don't know if you know this or not, but people have negative stereotypes about Christians. You know that. Did you know that there are people who don't believe what we believe, who think what we believe is crazy, and they have negative assumptions about us? Do you know that? Not on social media, never watch TV. It's out there. It's all over the place. They have terrible, they have stereotypes. And you know what? By and large, we need to own it and reap it because we've earned those stereotypes. But sometimes you read these things and you hear about these things, you're like, that's not true. And I think when Jesus came on the scene, he realized that people had negative stereotypes about religious people. And so he actually made it a point to differentiate between him and the Pharisees. In fact, he would tell parables that say, I'm not like the Pharisees. His first inaugural sermon, the, larger, lar, the longest sermon that we have on record of Jesus and maybe the most important, the Sermon on the Mount, he would go, he'd say, you know, the, the Pharisees say this, but I say this. The Pharisees act this way, but I act this way. He had to deconstruct what people thought, their preconceived notions about what it meant to be in his club. You know what? We have to do the same thing. And so the way he confronted it is that he would have meals with people to force people to deal not with the stereotypes of Jesus, but with the real Jesus. 
And that you and I need to have meals with people to force people to deal with their stereotypes of what, the, of how they, what they think about Christians and let them meet someone who may not fit their stereotypes. And I hope that you don't fit the stereotype. If you're unfamiliar with what those stereotypes are, let me just tell you what I think are six things, but it's an aggregate of what you know you read online and what I've just heard from just talking to people who aren't Christians. Number one, people who aren't Christians think Christians are angry and judgmental. Now, if you're thinking like, no, I'm not, well, yeah, you are. And so um, <laughs> number two, anti-intellectual, incredibly culturally unaware. Three, hypocritical, meaning they, they say that they're better people, but actually their lives are no different. Here's one. It gets worse. Irrationally scrupulous. I mean, Christians will say things like, don't cuss and you know, don't do this and do this and do these little things, but they'll ignore massive injustices like international injustice or racism. So it's the thing when Jesus said, you know, you strain the gnat, but you swallow the camel. It's like you, you like are very careful to not to do the little things, but you ignore like the really big things. Here's the last one, that we're tribal and self-absorbed, meaning like that we only care about what's good for Christians, that when it comes to social policy and political policy, that we're, Christians are only concerned about themselves. And I believe Jesus ate meals with sinners to force people to deal with the real Jesus and not the stereotypes. And if you do this, you will force people to deal with the real stereotypes. Excuse me, you'll force people to deal with the real Jesus and not the stereotypes. So here's the, here's the action point. Do with one person what you wish you could do with everyone. Because when I hear those stereotypes, I want to like go on the street corner, on late night TV or social media or whoever it has. It's not true. It's not true. It's not true. It's not who Jesus is. It's not what he expects. I can't, I want to do it with everyone, but I can't do it with everyone and neither can you and we shouldn't try, but we can do it with one person. You could make sure that people on your street, whether they believe in Jesus or not, that they at least get to meet the real Jesus, not the stereotype of what they think Christians are. Because Jesus was not judgmental. He, he, didn't, he did care about injustice. He did care about racism. He, did, he wasn't emotionally fake. He wasn't disingenuous. He wasn't self-absorbed. But he was about blessing the whole world. Now, the final reason I want to give us to extend this kind of hospitality to others is because this the hospitality is the gospel. Hospitality is the gospel. It's from the beginning. In Deuteronomy in the Old Testament, it says this, for the Lord your God is a God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great and the mighty and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Therefore, just because God has treated you this way, therefore you love the sojourner. Therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. This is what he's saying. You were, because of your sin, you were the banished one. You were out wandering in this world and you deserved it. But I went to you and I showed you hospitality. I physically fed you and I fed you spiritually. I brought you into our family, which means our motivation for doing hospitality with other people is not out of duty, but delight. I mean, because it's very easy. You know, Brian said we should, you know, every, once a week, you know, bless someone. And very quickly, it's going to become a checklist. And very quickly, you're like, oh, man, like, I don't feel like doing this. It's become this heavy thing. Well, don't 
See it that way. See that what God, how God has shown you hospitality, how you were once cut off, how you were once not apart, but God brought you in on the cross. Jesus experienced the very opposite of hospitality. Hospitality is taking someone on the outside and bringing them on the inside. And Jesus, who was the ultimate insider, says in Hebrews 13 that he was forced outside the city to a place called Golgotha. And we did not give him a feast. We gave him our fist. That we didn't wash his feet, but we nailed him to a cross. And we deserve to be banished, but he brought us in. And on the cross, when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was left completely alone. And the reason why he was left completely alone is so that you and I would never, ever, 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 ever have to be alone. And our motivation for showing hospitality to other people by sitting down and having a meal is because Jesus Christ, the ultimate insider, became the ultimate outsider for us. And he brought us in to the ultimate meal. I mean, do you know that, guys? That the, the kingdom is referred to as the wedding supper of the Lamb. He's inv- we have an invitation to the table. And that should thrill our heart and motivate us to go out and extend invitation to the highways and the byways and to anyone and say, you are welcomed in my life. You who are an outsider, I'm going to go to you. I'm going to listen. I'm going to invite you into my home. I'm going to invite you into my world because Jesus Christ has shown me hospitality and I'm going to extend it to you. Why don't we stand?